Okay, so Apple isn't moving the Mac to ARM. Not exactly. And this isn't about speed. It isn't even about battery life. Not really. No. Most people are just getting all of this wrong, wrong, wrong. And I'm going to explain to you exactly why. Sponsored by CuriosityStream, now bundled with my streaming service, Nebula. I'm Rene Ritchie, and if you want to be the first to know what's really happening with Apple Silicon and the Mac, hit that subscribe button and bell right now. Just last month, Apple CEO Tim Cook announced that they're going to be transitioning the Mac lineup, the MacBooks, the iMacs, all of it, from Intel chipsets to custom Apple Silicon. And that's not ARM. That's custom Apple Silicon. And the difference may be subtle, but it's also really, really significant. And it's not just because insisting on calling it Mac on ARM is kind of petty, especially if you've never had any issue saying AMD instead of PC on x86 or whatever. But no, because it's mostly wrong. Mostly. First, ARM has two different kinds of licenses. One is for chipset designs. You pay your fee, you take your Cortex cores or whatever, you get them fabbed, and you've got your CPUs. The second is an ISO license. With that, you get no chip design. None. All you get is the instruction set architecture. You have to roll the actual design all by yourself. And that's exactly what Apple's been doing, making their own custom designs that use the ARM instruction set for years. Second, because the ARM instruction set, even the CPU, is only one small part of the Apple Silicon package. Literally. The instant it became clear the iPhone and iPad would be better off with custom silicon, the story goes Steve Jobs set out to find the best chipset designers in the world and bring them to Apple's campus to make that silicon for him, for the iPhone, for the iPad. And that's all evolved into the Hardware Technologies Group, led by Senior Vice President Johnny Saruji, who you may remember from this wicked generation a year for a decade flex from last month's keynote. In January of 2010, Apple's first ever in-house silicon debuted alongside the original iPad. It came to the iPhone that same June. It was called the A4, and it was a system on a chip, or SOC. That means instead of having a separate processor and graphics and card and RAM modules like you might have in a PC build, everything was integrated together into a single chip. Like, instead of a computer platter, it's a computer sandwich. Now, remember that part, because it'll be important later. It used a version of the ARM Cortex A8 processor, because back then, Apple was licensing ARM designs. The A5 used a version of the Cortex A9, but in 2012, Apple switched to the instruction set license and released their first custom CPU with the A6. Now, here's where it all starts to get really interesting. In September of 2013, Apple introduced not only their first 64-bit chipset, but the mobile industry's first 64-bit chipset. That's right. While Qualcomm and Samsung were content to make up their R&D costs on 32-bit by leaving it on the shelves for years to come, Apple very literally shocked the silicon world. They gave absolutely zero fabs about leapfrogging them all to 64-bit as fast as serugally possible. And we'll get to why that's important in a minute as well. Okay, screw it. We'll get to it now. See, there's no magic to what Apple does with silicon. No tricks. There are just two reasons two very interrelated reasons why, year after year, Apple's been able to outperform every other phone and every other tablet. One, Apple doesn't have to sell its chipsets. Apple is not a silicon merchant. They don't have to operate like a silicon merchant. They don't have to worry about marketing or markups or shelf life. They don't even have to care about profit or loss on each generation or each chipset, just the devices that those chipsets power. And Apple's platform technologies team isn't constrained or held back by any of those concerns, not in any way. Two, Apple's silicon team only has one customer. 
They don't have to worry about supporting multiple different vendors with competing or conflicting technologies, feature sets, agendas. They don't have to try and guess what will or won't be important in the future or build things that may or may not ever get used. All Apple's platform technologies team has to do right now is run iOS and iPadOS, tvOS and watchOS, and soon macOS faster than anything else on the planet. That's their only one job. And I mean, not to get too far off on a tangent, but look at it this way. Apple has already shipped half a decade of dedicated wearable silicon for the Apple Watch, and Qualcomm just announced their third generation of rehashed old phone chips for Android Wear, because there's literally no one who can afford to pay them to invest in anything beyond that, and they sure as hell don't seem willing to do it all on spec. And that's just the difference that comes from selling the chip instead of selling the product. Okay, so... Given infinite time, any silicon team worth a damn could design a system on a chip with maximum performance at maximum efficiency up to the limits of known physics in our universe. But we don't live in a world with infinite time. We live in one with tight deadlines and supremely high stakes. You get a few years to plan, but you have to ship every year. So what Apple's done is build a solid foundation and then iterate on it over and over and over again. Not just a multi-year plan, but as a multi-year investment. See, when Apple went 64-bit so early, many of us, myself included, struggled to understand why. A bunch of pundits fell on the tiredest of cliches about more bits only really being useful to address more memory. But that wasn't it at all. A few of us settled on the new, cleaner, 64-bit ARMv8 instruction set and improved hardware security. But what Apple really did with the A7 was completely re-architect the chipset itself. That was the actual leap forward. 64-bit was just future-proofing gravy. Then Apple noticed that pushing maximum performance on bigger cores meant leaving a gap on the lower end. So with the A10 Fusion, they began pairing the high-performance cores with high-efficiency cores as well, and created a performance controller to intelligently, transparently manage the switching between them. With the A11 Bionic, Apple got rid of the Fusion and let each and every core operate separately or together as needed. And they also made the new efficiency cores almost as fast as the previous generation's performance cores while maintaining their efficiency. Now, today, current cores have even better performance efficiency, way better, and that's still on a branch of the ARMv8 on Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing's seven nanometer node, never mind the upcoming ARMv9 and five nanometer nodes. After saying at the very beginning of this that the ARM instruction set part, the CPU part, was only a very small part of the package, I've just spent a ton of time talking about exactly that, because they've been so customized beyond any ARM design and also beyond the CPU. See, in that same A11 Bionic, Apple debuted their own custom graphics processor, or GPU, as well. Previously, Apple had been using PowerVR for the graphics cores, but for reasons I'll get to in a minute, in 2017, they went full-on Apple with a wide and slow approach, which lets them handle loads as efficiently as possible, but also gives them the headroom they need to handle spikes when they need to. Think of it like having a Ferrari on a single-lane highway and how super frustrating that can be when it's congested. An eight-lane highway, though, well, there's usually room when and if that Ferrari just needs to go full throttle. But the real point isn't even the supercar. It's the super efficiency of everything else moving across all those lanes around it. Because performance and power efficiency go hand in hand. When done right, power efficiency actually enables the performance. And the reason for those custom graphics cores is because with the A11, Apple also added their first A&E, Apple Neural Engine, which now not only has eight cores of its own, but a machine learning controller that can also target AMX, Apple's machine learning accelerators, in the performance cores. 
The neural engine is also tied into the image signal processor now, which is what handles all the photographs and videos on the iPhone and iPad, including things like live previews on computational photography effects and interleaving extended dynamic range on 4K video streams. And even that, all that is still only part of what Apple's system on a chip is doing, well beyond the instruction set and the CPU. There's the power manager, the cryptography accelerator, the secure enclave, the high-efficiency audio processor, depth engine, pro display engine, storage controller, HEVC video encode and decode, HDR video processor, always-on processor, high-performance unified memory, high-bandwidth cache, silicon packaging, and enhanced OLED processing. And it's not even that Apple wants to make every single component inside every single device, because that kind of arrogance just leads to the worst kind of falls. But it feels very much like Apple wants to own every component that leads to a real, impactful, differentiated experience for customers. And that, even all of that, is still not the really important part, which, yeah, I'm getting to right now. Because Apple's silicon team only has one client, Apple, and because the silicon team works so closely with the hardware engineering teams, the software engineering teams, even the human interface teams, they can build silicon specifically to support the hardware, software, and interfaces those teams want to create. So here, as ridiculous as it sounds, it's critical to understand that philosophically, Apple doesn't even really ever ship chipsets. They ship feature sets. They never shipped NFC. They shipped Apple Pay. They never really shipped a neural engine. They shipped Face ID. Yes, years before any pundit wrote how far behind Apple was in machine learning that they would never catch up, Apple was already integrating machine learning at the silicon level, things that other vendors would have to then race to catch up for and are still kind of racing to do ever since. And that's not hyperbole. That's not fanfic. That's because the specs, the tech, none of it matters as much as the user experience it's there to deliver. All the performance, which gets all of the attention every year when whoever runs a benchmark between the latest Galaxy phone and the six or 10 month old iPhone, or writes about the $400 iPhone SE being faster than the most expensive Android phone you can buy, all of that is incidental. It's a side effect of the way Apple is designing not just its CPUs, but its entire SOC. All of this to say, I don't think that many people are really getting the enormity of the Mac transition Apple announced last month. Again, they're not just moving from x86 to ARM. That's myopic. They're moving from a hodgepodge of Intel CPUs, Intel and AMD GPUs, and custom Apple T2 chips that they've been shipping for years just to work around the lack of features in those CPUs and GPUs. And they're moving to Apple Silicon, which Johnny Saruji very specifically said was going to include a family of systems on a chip. And when Tim Cook announced them, he didn't say it was to make Macs faster, though that's certainly what everyone is hoping for, or to make Macs with better battery life, though that's probably a safe assumption as well. And he certainly didn't say it was to make Macs cheaper for Apple to make, not given the real and opportunity costs of targeting that team at that problem. No, he very specifically said it was to make better Macs, Macs that just simply wouldn't be possible any other way. When Steve Jobs said the exact same thing a decade and a half ago, within three years, we got the original MacBook Air, and within five years, the Air that went on to redefine a generation of laptops. And that was working with Intel and their process and thermal limits. Working with Apple Silicon, literally, the sky is the only limit. I mean, the current developer kit is using a chip designed for an iPad two years ago, not for a Mac not with what will be Apple's Mac Silicon at all. And its performance is already impressive, running seemingly better in emulation than Windows runs on Qualcomm natively, which we'll get back to in a hot minute. Remember a few or five years ago, the 12-inch MacBook couldn't handle editing a single stream of 4K? 
The newer 13-inch MacBook Air could barely handle it with the fans on max, but the same year's iPad Pro could handle three streams simultaneously. It didn't even have a fan. Just think for a minute, what will an Apple Silicon MacBook be able to handle and without a lick of fan noise? We've already heard that Apple Silicon will have hypervisor just built into it to make virtualization ultra-performant. Imagine what else Apple could build in to make other critical elements of the Mac experience ultra-performant in a way no off-the-shelf chipset could just ever do. Which is why I think talk of the Mac on Apple Silicon being the end of Windows on Intel and Microsoft and all their vendors racing to switch to ARM is kind of missing the point. This isn't really an ARM thing, not entirely. This isn't throwing a Qualcomm chip in a Surface or even a hybrid AMD or Intel chip into an HP or Dell. This just isn't even in the same universe. And don't get me wrong, those products could be great. They could be awesome. They could be the same. They could be just different. But they'll still be using Merchant Silicon. They'll still be modular, and they'll still not be doing anything at all like what Apple's doing here. Not unless or until Microsoft spends years and a fortune making its own custom silicon, or Qualcomm does the same making its own operating system and production computer hardware. And that they're not could be a huge advantage for Apple, but it could also be a huge risk. Come later this year and for the next two years, Apple silicon not only has to ship, but it has to deliver. What if any of those SOCs just aren't ready? What if they're not as performant or as efficient as everyone is hoping they'll be? Or, oh God, even as Intel is right now. The iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch have all been phenomenally successful from the silicon on up. And if Apple Silicon Macs are going to be just as successful, they're going to have to earn it. Because that's the real cost of doing all this, the real price that Apple has to pay. The only way they make their money back, make their legendary margins, is if they continue to make products that we want to buy. If they make products that just aren't possible with Intel. Just like Nebula only works if we continue to put out great videos, videos that just wouldn't be possible here on YouTube. Nebula is the amazingly cool new streaming video service I'm building with a group of education creator friends. People like TechAlter, Braincraft, T1J, Legal Eagle, Up and Atom, and more. It's a place where we can just try out new things without having to worry about the tyranny of the algorithm or being demonetized or just being told to stay in our YouTube lane. And it's also got terrific originals like Tom Scott's Money or Alex Goes Bananas, which you just might see me in sometime soon. Also, the Working Title series, where a bunch of us take a look at a bunch of our favorite TV shows, something that would just never work with the algorithm, but works fantastically well on Nebula. It's also a place where we can post all of our regular videos, videos just like this one, without any ads or sponsorships at all. I've been posting the full-length videos from my podcasts, 45-minute chats with I, Justine, Brian Tong, Walt Mossberg, and more to come. Again, things that would just get buried here by the algorithm. And now, because Nebula comes bundled with CuriosityStream, you also get access to its thousands of documentaries and series by people like David Attenborough and Chris Hatfield, which right now is discounted all the way down to $14.97 a year. Yeah, a year. Seriously, it's the better, absolute best deal in streaming today. Just go to curiositystream.com slash Renee Ritchie for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series. And now... Nebula as well. Enter the promo code Renee Ritchie to start your membership completely free for the first 31 days. Thanks, CuriosityStream, and thanks to all of you for your support. Check out my Apple Silicon playlist above and see you next video.